how how are my levels? They're really high. Yeah, I'm I'm adjusting them as you keep speaking. I will keep speaking. This isn't the way to test a microphone. You're you might be I'm the worst person <laughs> I've ever met. This is what I always do. It's counterproductive and wastes everyone's time. Okay. So Matt. Yes, Victor. I'm sad. So sad. Why are you sad, Victor? Because this is our last episode, possibly, of Match Volume. I know. No! no! This is it. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life anymore. I feel like 15 years from now, when you're working for Marketplace and I'm likely dead or have been framed for murder. See, I think the reverse is going to happen. Like, you'll be working for Marketplace. I won't be, I won't likely be dead because it's 15 years. Yeah. I'll just be. Poor and broke. More realistic. Yeah, that's, that's probably right. Okay. So, yeah, unemployed, so etc. When we're sharing a studio apartment. No, 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 no. This is how okay. it's going to happen. Okay. Set it up for me, man. Pay attention. I'm, I'm listening. Pay attention. <laughs> I'm listening. Me and you will lose contact uh, because I don't like responding to text messages. Yeah, and I hate keeping in touch with people. And 15, 20 years will, will pass and we'll both go on doing our separate things, maybe live in completely different parts of the country. All of a sudden we're in like, uh, a Bloomingdale's. Ideal. That's ideal. Interviewing for a job at Bloomingdale's. We both walk into the elevator. It's going to kill you. You're right. You are going to be dead in 15 years. <laughs> we both walk into the elevator on our way up to the job interview. I kind of look at you. I'm like, oh man, that guy kind of looks familiar. And then the music, the soundtrack starts playing through the elevator. Oh my God. How did they get a hold of our music? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's just continue. <laughs> and then we both look at each other and we we realize who the who that person is standing across. And then we the both elevator. go into saying our thing. Like we'll just do right now. Today on Match Volume, we meet a stand-up comic who refuses to be boxed in. Suburban, you know, soccer mom. Hola, como estas? You're like, oh, uh, you're talking to me in Spanish? You're like, si. Por que no hablas español? I'm like, I, I, no, I don't speak Spanish. You know, it's like, how is this happening? And on a completely separate note, a Pulitzer Prize finalist goes back in history to warn us of the dangers of prejudice. I think that uh, mass hysteria has always been a part of American life. Our whole constitutional system was designed to avoid that, but again and again in history, government has responded to the mob. So Victor, as always, what is Match Volume? So we're interviewing the experts, the oddballs, and kind of those people who make you say, what? At least that's what we try to bring you here at Match Volume. So just interesting people that you would want to ask questions of? Pretty much. I finally get it. I did <laughs> not know what we were doing until now. Usually it takes about five episodes in like, you know, like Game of Thrones and all those things. So we did it in four. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Victor, have you ever visited a psychic? 
No, my my sisters have, and they they took my palm afterwards and were like, "You'll live to be eighty years old." I'm like, "All right." It's always <laughs> it's always you're gonna live to be eighty. The psychic never says, "Oh, you have three and a half days," because then three and a half days later you can just come and visit the psychic. They always project it out where the psychic will be long dead before you can confront him yeah. or her, or they just like murder you to make their own psychic predictions come true. Um, on that note, I always like to segue with murder. Why don't you tell us about our first guest? So our first guest today is Ross Blotcher. He's the co-host of the podcast, Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Carrie is actually a student here at USC, and uh, she's like this very lively girl, and Ross is this kind of matter-of-fact man with a really deep voice. I don't know if I can imitate that properly. But anyways, they investigate these either groups, cults, maybe theories, and they try to give them face value. They're skeptics. Yes. Um, uh, so they don't just you know, sit back in their ivory tower and make fun of what other people think are fringe religions or cults or things along those lines. They actually go there and see what these people are actually all about. Yeah, and then they make fun of them. So for our first piece, let's hear from Ross. just want to start off by you telling me what inspired you to do the show with Carrie. So yeah, we have the podcast Ono, Ross, and Carrie, and uh, we investigate fringe religions, alternative medical treatments, spirituality. It can be like medium psychics, haunted places. Uh, we just do it firsthand and report on it. Carrie and I realized early on in our friendship that we were unique and that we wanted to go experience these things. And so it, it all stemmed out of this Kabbalah incident. She said, you know, do you want to go to this thing? They're talking about, you know, the month of whatever it was and the Virgo sign. And we're like, yeah, yeah, let's go to the Kabbalah Center. And everybody else around us, like at our, uh, it was like a skeptics book club. They were all like, yeah, no, why would I want to waste my time doing that? We're like, what are you talking about? It sounds totally fun. That's Kabbalah. Exactly. <laughs> so we went, we experienced it, and when we got back, everybody's like, well, tell us what happened. Okay, you didn't want to go, but you want to hear about it. And that, that's when it kind of clicked, like, oh, we, we might have something here. What's your fave story that you've, that you've actually done, your favorite story? Well, you know, it always comes back to the Mormons because we joined the Mormon religion, actually went through uh, six months worth of the classes and got so invested in them because they got so invested in us. And they were so like unguarded about it. You know, they're just, oh, you want to you want to know? We'll tell you what we believe. Uh, and so that's always our go to. We kind of compare everything against that, I guess. It's like to me, you often empathize with your subjects. Yeah, usually we'll connect with the people on a personal level. We also try to set ourselves apart by being nice because <laughs> I think there's a lot of content out there where people are just kind of bagging on these uh, beliefs and ideas. And, you know, we try to give everybody hopefully a fair shake. I, I would say we have a slightly different attitude when it's someone who we feel knows what they're doing and they're doing something that's like purposefully false. We did uh, an investigation of Teresa Caputo, the Long Island medium. I don't know if you've seen her on TV. She's got like the big white hair, the nails. Our investigation was attending one of her shows and paying like the 90 bucks per seat or whatever it was. My opinion is that she knows what she's doing. Like she's playing a certain game. She's doing cold reading, uh, kind of pulling information from them visually maybe and having them provide information without realizing it and also doing some really smart guesswork 
and then kind of working down a trail that gets you to something specific without having them realize the path that led to that. When we see something like that, then we're like, all right, not cool. Is there like something every time you do one of these podcasts, you make sure to to do? You know, uh, we'll usually try to go in blind if we can. I mean, sometimes, of course, we learn about them or hear about them or read up on them. But we would love to just walk in and kind of see what happens uh, in someone's mind when they're arriving at this group. And we'll report on that. And maybe sometimes that will be at odds with the experience of someone who had been within that organization for 20 years because they know a whole lot more than we were given as first-time visitors. Has there ever been a moment where you felt in danger from doing a story that you're investigating? I'd say the, the most dangerous one that we investigated was the Tony Alamo cult. So we're getting into this you know, van with all these people and being shuttled off 40 minutes into kind of the hills. And I'm seeing the bars disappear on my phone. Meanwhile, we've already read about these people. And we know that the leader of the group who's in jail for 175 years for child molestation and marrying kids as young as nine. It's a lot of life sentences right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, we had also read these stories about like him having people beaten with planks and, you know, these really horrible things. So I'd say that was the, the scariest situation we got ourselves in when we're like, eh, these people turn on us. That, that could be dangerous. So like you got there and it was, it was like, just be one of them. Just be one of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and it didn't help. Uh, poor Carrie, like we'll often find out things about a group by what she wears kind of unwittingly. You know, it's like, yeah, it's wearing your normal clothing. And when we went there the first time, as we were getting into that van, they're like, uh, did you see her skirt? And like, you can hear them muttering to each other. They're like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens when we get to the church. And we get to the church and they take her to a room in the back and they make her change into a pair of pants. And they've got a bunch of pants back there for women to change into if their skirt is inappropriate. Is there an investigation that was like kind of like your biggest learning experience or just like, <laughs> well, we should never do this again? The one that comes to mind. Yeah. And here's a big lesson we learned is that we uh, joined the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is a uh, kind of a, a black magic group. They're not Satanists. Don't call them Satanists. They don't want to be called Satanists. So we joined them. We were doing the rituals and we thought maybe we were eating cookies that were baked with human sperm. We didn't know. We uh, published the first episode and then we went back to, uh, you know, experience more. And they had already heard the podcast. They'd found out about it, and uh, we were forever more banished. So uh, we learned a lesson there. Don't publish until you're done investigating. Don't think you can, like, put out part one and then do more. Also with OTO, we tried using uh, fake names, and that did not work for me because, like, we tried to call me Rob Denman instead of Ross Blotcher, and both Carrie and myself kept calling me Ross. So that was stupid. Why not just use the same first name? Are you going to continue doing this, uh, the same process or is there something, I don't know, bigger plan that you might have for the show? I, I think it'll be largely the same. You know, we'll try to mix it up and do something new. So, okay, we just did one on psychics. So let's do something that's kind of an alternative medical thing. Okay, it's been a while since we've gone on a ghost investigation. A another Great. thing I do, and I've been doing this even longer than the podcast, is I'm involved with a group called uh, the IIG, the Independent Investigations Group. And we actually offer a cash prize for anyone who can prove a paranormal ability. 
So I'm putting this out there in case any of you are listening to this and thinking, you know what, I uh, can talk to the dead or I can levitate or any of those abilities. We will actually test you. We'll devise a test. Say, okay, you're a water dowser. What we're going to do is we're going to put you know a bunch of bottles under boxes so you can't see what's in them. One of them will have water. The rest won't. And if you can pass consistently at odds way better than chance, of course, we set it so that you be showing that you really have this ability. You're not just guessing you get a hundred thousand dollars for it so we have kind of the the podcast which is the experiential thing but if someone wants to win that money they come to the iig everyone you're just listening to ross blotcher of oh no ross and carrie uh we show up so you don't have to yeah they show up so we don't have to but you can if you want to (laughs) (laughs) yeah show up if you want to you know it might be a little sketchy but it's all good thanks so much ross thank you victor um, so it's very difficult to segue to our next guest. So I'm not going to come up with some type of contrived segue. Victor, let's let's talk about Richard Reeves and his new book. Yeah, Richard Reeves is actually a USC professor here. He's a Pulitzer finalist, and he just wrote the book Infamy. It actually really hits home here because he's talking about Japanese internment camps, which were pretty numerous here during the 40s. And he wrote this book because he has some fear that those feelings from back then are resurfacing today. And just a warning, after listening to this, you probably won't think of Horton Hears a Who the same way again, if you're a Dr. Seuss fan. So here is reporter Logan Healy with Richard Reeves. So, Professor Reeves, let's let's kick it off. Why did you write this book? I wrote the book because I knew enough about the internment concentration camps for 120,000 American Japanese in World War II, and I wanted to do my bit to make sure that never happens again. Seems to me very possible that if we would do the same thing again to Muslims if there were enough incidents of terrorism at home, what was America like at this time that allowed for this internment of 120,000 people to happen? I mean, obviously the key event was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Japanese employees of the city of Los Angeles, for instance, were all let go. Schools expelled Japanese-American students. For the first couple of weeks, the press was urging calm and saying, you know, there has been no trouble here. There wasn't any sabotage in Hawaii before Pearl Harbor, and we should all remain calm. That lasted about two weeks, and then the press turned, and it fed uh, the racism. The Japanese had been uh, treated like uh, minorities of color are here, and greed. The Japanese, for instance, controlled 40% of the agriculture in California, and the white farmers, the Caucasian farmers, wanted that land. They had a huge fishing industry, and other fishermen wanted those waters and those boats. When those people got out of the camps, they had nothing left. Their bank accounts had been frozen. They couldn't pay their mortgages. Their property was foreclosed on and given to uh, white neighbors. So you did talk to some survivors, and what, what did they have to say, you know, having gone through the camp, coming out with with nothing. They didn't say anything for about 30 years. 
And the Japanese, the generation, the Nisei, the first generation of immigrants who were all aliens, so they could be locked up, but their kids, the Nisei who had been born in America, were American citizens. But since they were children when it happened, uh, their parents never really told them what they did until about the 1970s. And then suddenly people began to talk and write about what had happened. When you talked about the the media's role in causing some of this fear to happen, and and part of the media at that time was Dr. Seuss. Well, the media really drove the internment, the roundup, at the beginning, but politicians quickly followed whatever the media wanted and was saying. Walter Lippmann was the most famous columnist in the country, and he bought the line pushed by Earl Warren, who was then the attorney general of California, that the fact that there had been no sabotage meant they were planning a big wave of sabotage. Two days after he did that, Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which was used to put the American Japanese in camps. And among the people who joined that bandwagon was Theodore Geisel, who was the editorial cartoonist of a newspaper in New York who did one of the most famous cartoons showing Japanese with buck teeth and glasses collecting dynamite and then looking out to sea in telescopes waiting for the signal from Tokyo to start sabotage. His name was Theodore Geisel, but we got to know him better later as Dr. Seuss. You know, I did read after that uh, Dr. Seuss wrote Horton Here's a Who as an apology for his contribution yeah. to the internment. A lot of people apologize. You know, America is, um, we're people of the present. Our answer to almost everything we've done is to move on. You, you talked earlier about this could possibly happen today. Why, why do you think that's so? I think that uh, mass hysteria has always been a part of American life. Our whole constitutional system was designed to avoid that. But again and again in history, government has responded to the mob, and the mob has responded to government, and that's what happened to the Japanese. Well, Professor, thank you so much for stopping by the studio. The book is Infamy, the Shocking Story of the Japanese-American Internment in World War II, and I'm Logan Healy, sitting down with Professor Richard Reeves. Thanks very much. Next up, we have Robert Zapata. He is a seasoned comedian here in California. And uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. So Robert Zapata, a.k.a. Bobby Shoes. Or uh, High Heel, he likes to say sometimes. As white people know him. Um, (laughs) He was born here in Los Angeles. Like you said, he's a veteran comic. He's been working at the Laugh Factory for a while. Um, he's been working on a half hour special, but he's kind of at a point in his comedic career where he's going to be venturing into new material, both because of some things happening in politics and because of some things in his personal life. And now Taylor talking with funny man, Bobby Zapata. So what was like the, the moment that you really knew that you had to be a comedian? The first time I went up at an actual comedy club, not knowing how the system works, and it was an open mic night, paid the $5, you get your orange juice or whatever you want to drink, 
And so I'm like, oh, cool. We have a crowd. It's four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and uh, they're all comedians. And I had them all laughing. That's when everybody was like, dude, you got to come do my room. And uh, here I am 17 years later still going at it. My name is Robert Zapata. So you do this bit on, on your name. My American name is Bob Shu. <laughs> the reason why I created that bit is to try to expand my myself as a comedian. It's unfortunate that nowadays people stereotype and people put people in boxes because based off their perception of what they look like. So I was trying to break that. Doesn't that mean shoe? No, it doesn't mean shoe. Zapata is a shoe. Zapata is a high heel. That was my thought process and trying to relate with everybody and allow non-Hispanic people to be a part of my material. I don't want to be just like... My whole crowd is all Hispanic people. Before, I used to say, yeah, even Hispanic people are like, doesn't that mean shoe? I mean, aren't you, aren't you Mexican? Don't you know Spanish? No, I don't, I don't speak Spanish. Suburban, you know, soccer mom. Hola, como estas? You know, like, oh, uh, you're talking to me in Spanish? You know, like, si. ¿Por qué no hablas español? I'm like, I, I, no, I don't speak Spanish. You know, it's like, how is this happening? How, how does immigration reform figure into your comedy? It'll help me learn. You know, because now it'll make me more aware of what's what's going on. You mean uh, starting to do comedy on that? Yeah, comedy on that. You know, that's one thing. As a comedian, like I've yet to hit the political part. Political humor, you have to really be on top of your game. You got to know what you're talking about. You got to know all the angles. And that's my next step in my comedy career because I think that's if I've I've noticed that every comedian who's actually touched on politics. They've excelled because now they go, oh, hey, this guy's the thinker. He's smart. You know, he's not just pulling from his family. He's actually going outside of his family. Because in my my baby, he's he's half white, half Mexican. So it's like uh, I, I, it's going to be interesting for him. You know, how is he going to be raised? And like, what side is he going to take? And we're going to make sure that he knows it all. You know, we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna make him well rounded. You are about to be, or maybe already are, a father. I I'm about to be like any second. Yeah. Today, tomorrow, who knows? It could happen right now. You know what I mean? This might be a stretch, but how do you think that'll change your comedy? It's going to change it a lot. Not that it will change me as a person, but I'll have more material because it means more. That's why in, in our business, it takes a long time to get established because in the beginning, you're just cranking out jokes, you're being funny, but it's not coming from within your core. They always say overnight success in Hollywood is 10 years because that first 10 years, you're just trying to figure out who you are as a person. And then by the 10th year, you kind of know, okay, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And now you can kind of create that foundation and your, your feet stay planted. That was comedian Robert Zapata. And thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate it. He mentioned he had a child on the way, and actually that child has been born. Hooray! Yes, little Harrison Zapata is his name. Uh, and congratulations uh, to Mr. Mr. Shoe. Harrison Shoe Jr. <laughs> yes, as we all love it. Um, and now for our final segment. Wah. This is it. Yeah. We thought it would be fitting if we each got to ask each other one match volume interview question. All so right. Victor, why don't why don't you start? All right, Matt. Would you rather wear a helmet for the rest of your life 
or eat a live cat? Ooh. Ooh. Okay, there's... Am I allowed to ask subsequent questions? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. By the way, this is a comedy bang bang. Comedy bang bang does this, but that's okay. That's okay. It's now match volume. It's now match volume. Um, the cat. How big is the cat? So regular average cat, whatever you think an average cat size is. So it's not like a tiger. Is. I'm not gonna. Have it's to not eat a, a tiger. tiger. Tigers are not average cat size. Like an average house cat size. Is can the cat be prepared? No, the cat can't be prepared. There will not be any negative health. Uh, consequences to you eating the cat but you do have to eat the entire cat except for the bones negative health does that include psychological every no, time that doesn't include psychological and like have terrible ptsd only physical consequences will not come to you i, I see so i could i could have awful p like you could every have, time i you see could have it, cat I, hear meow, yeah. <laughs> I get hungry and scared at the same time that's and true guilty yeah it's like cannibalism but with cats do i get to choose the cat I will let you choose a cat. Okay, going back to the helmet. Yes. Uh, what type of helmet is it? Do I get to choose the helmet? You know, you do not get to choose the helmet. Um, it will be a regular bicycle helmet. Those okay. type of helmets, you know, you know, when you're as a kid, you wear that that helmet. But now it's an adult size one. Yeah, and yeah. You have to wear it for the rest of your life. So I can't shower. I can't shower with the helmet off. No, you can't shower with the. Oh, helmet I off. take the cat. <laughs> I take the cat. Right answer. Because I hate I hate hat hair, and I don't really like cats. I mean, you won't ever have really hat hair because you can't take the helmet off. I think I think hat hair is when you take off whatever you have. I guess you have it underneath, but either way, um, the cat is the right answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Woo. Yes. Last segment one. All right, now Matt, uh, what have you always wanted? to ask me or what have you always questioned about me during our time together as match volume co-host victor all all i want to know is if we're like actually friends whether we're just co-hosts or whether we're you know chill outside of the outside of the studio that's it for this edition of match volume victor the producers of the show are victor figueroa and matt levin of course who are best friends we had help today from taylor haney logan healy all of which and match volume is a podcast of annenberg radio news and the media center at usc's annenberg school for communication and journalism i need a kidney i'm victor figueroa i've carried you this whole way that's matt levin and for our last episode, bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thanks for those of you who, who did listen. Um, this was fun. Bye. Volume. 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 Volume.